Welcome to the Sales Compensation Show, where we share the latest sales performance research, insights, and solutions through in-depth discussions with industry experts. So put that spreadsheet away, grab a beverage, and enjoy the conversation. I'm your host, Justin Lane. My pleasure and my honor to welcome Donya Rose to the show. I first met Donya a number of years back when we were working on a project. She was helping out a client with a sales compensation design project. And in conjunction with that, I was working with the client to look at various software tools in the space to try to provide some automation around that sales compensation plan. During that engagement, I was impressed by Donya. Her ideas her communication skills with not only myself, but the client. And most of all, I think her ability to rapidly deliver a tremendous amount of value to her clients. It taught me a lot about what it means to be a good consultant. Tanya, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, if you'd be so kind as to provide some background and introduction for the audience about yourself. Of course, yeah. I'm delighted to be talking to you. I'm always delighted to talk to you. And I still remember that uh, first engagement very well when we were both younger and less experienced, but we were still pretty smart and hardworking and we did deliver some value. So that was a lot of fun to do together. I'm a sales compensation plan design consultant. That's pretty much what I've been doing professionally for the better part of 20 years. And I had some experience with the practice at Towers Perrin, now Willis Towers Watson, but have been more independent and have my own firm for a number of years. I, you know, that spanned lots of different industries. And uh, as I say, sometimes as long as what we're, who we're compensating is humans, the foundational principles basically apply because really it's about human motivation. And that's, that's what we're in the business of trying to get right. I recently just talked about this idea of, I felt like 20 years ago, when you were first getting into the, the sales compensation industry, that people thought about sales compensation as a math problem to solve. And this idea that over time, it has become more thinking about the human element of it and behavioral economics and motivation and the humanistic side of the equation. Do you feel like that's been a similar progression over the past two decades? Yeah. I mean, we've, we've realized over time that it's not just about I mean, the perfect plan design that doesn't have excellent plan communication and roll out great reporting. Once the numbers are actually calculated so people can tell what they've been paid for, uh, good support from their bosses and coaches, there's a whole lot more to it. And huge is just getting the goals right. We'd like to think we're going to get the perfect comp plan that's going to change everything. But the truth is, when a salesperson sees their plan and they see usually at the same time their sales goals, they don't distinguish between the plan and the goals. In their mind, it's all one thing because they're all part of how I'm going to be able to make money. So the perfect comp plan with inappropriate goals, whether that's too high or too low, is not going to give you the pulling power and the results that the perfect comp plan with the perfect goals quotas would have given you. So yes, there's a lot more to it than getting the math right. I want to dive into that just a little bit more. I saw a recent statistic and you know whether you know, we believe in the idea of truth, lies, and statistics or not. I believe it was 64% of enterprise organizations have reported some difficulty 
and setting what they call good quotas. You just mentioned the idea of rolling out the sales compensation and the quota simultaneously. Have you in your career experienced the idea of you kind of sabotage the plan almost by rolling out these not very good quotas at the same time? Because they, in your mind, like you said, in the sales rep mind, they're bundling these things together. If they have a, a bad taste in their mouth about the, their number, do they feel the same way about the plan? Well, I think that's absolutely true, but at the same time, I don't think I don't think they can internalize the plan. They can't get to the so what for me of the mm-hmm. plan until they know what the quotas are. So absolutely, I've seen a lot of businesses where for different reasons, they might roll out the plan and the quotas separately. Sometimes it's because the quotas aren't ready yet and they need to go ahead and get the plans out and take that opportunity maybe when all the salespeople are gathered for the kickoff meeting They want to take that opportunity to explain the plans and then just promise that quotas will follow. But I think the salespeople don't internalize it as well until they have both together. You're absolutely Mm -hmm. right, though. When they see that quota for the first time, they can go off and not be able to think about anything but the quota. So it's and all of this is to say it's emotional, right? It's it's a I'm I'm trying to decide right now whether I'm going to say this, but now I've committed myself. I've been in sales plan rollouts where a significant minority of the people in the room were actually crying during the rollout. (laughs) There there was that was an extraordinary situation, but they were so no, no, they were so freaked out about the changes that they didn't really understand. And that was early in my career. And that was a heck of a lesson for me. I mean, I don't, I'm not taking full responsibility for that, but I will never forget it. And it has affected how I think that these things should be rolled out. So if, for example, you expect to be rolling out quotas that you think are going to really create an emotional response among your salespeople, ideally, you're sitting down manager to subordinate one-on-one and having that conversation where you're not just saying, here's this huge high high hurdle, expect you to jump over. You're saying, we think you can clear this hurdle over here and here's the training you're going to have and here are all the tools you're going to have and here are the new shoes you're going to get. And, you know, here are all the reasons we think that you're amazing and you're going to be able to do it. And here's how we're going to support you to do it. And now see that great big high hurdle you're going to be going over see what a rock star you are. I mean, it's that's really different from go jump over that impossible thing. And so yeah. there's a lot of nurturing and support that can help make whatever you're communicating either inspiring or terrifying. Yeah, spun off a couple of ideas there. One, I think one of the things I've seen be effective in that communication of the number is to let people know kind of the, the, the math behind it, the how did the company get there? But the second piece you describe, right? You told a story of a manager, you know, working with a rep, helping them understand, right? Their number and how they're going to make money and what does it mean to them and what behaviors are going to have to change. How many companies in your experience train the managers to be able to have that conversation? Or is that kind of just a skill study that you have or you don't have and as a sales manager? That's a hard thing for me to comment on because, of course, my sample is my clients, and I hit that really hard with my clients and and try to provide the training tools and emphasize the importance of that. And honestly, once you say it out loud, it's kind of self-evident that it's Mm -hmm. important. If no one bothers to say it out loud, then people can kind of forget and it can get lost in the shuffle. So 
I would say most of my clients do a decent job of that, but that's because I beat them over the head about it continuously as we get toward the end of the design process. You know, I, I think there's a lot of aspects of good communication. One of them is that I feel strongly that it needs to come from sales leadership. I know there are lots of organizations, and some of them are my clients, where sales operations or finance might even introduce the comp plans to the salespeople. But And I even have colleagues who will do that as a service. They'll do the introduction as consultants to the salespeople. But I really feel strongly that the salespeople need to see their leader explaining explaining the plan, explaining why this is good for the business, and most important, how this is going to really support the rep in being rewarded for doing the things that matter the most to the company and throwing out strategies for sort of how to make this plan work for them and encouraging them and letting them know our goal is not to save money here. Our goal is to spend money because you guys really do what we're asking you to do. You create a ton of value and we share a portion of that value back with you. You mentioned just now at the idea of the, the comp plan is emotional. We were at a conference together this summer and we sat in on a session where a former sales leader had the same idea. The sales compensation was emotional. And his company's response to that was to get rid of, in some way, shape, or form, sales compensation. Does the pendulum need to go that far? Is it okay for sales comp to be emotional? And maybe how do we blunt the edges of of helping reps have it not be so emotional? Right. And when is it emotional? I mean, that that's what, what contributes to it being emotional. I think those are some important questions. I think people get emotional in an unfortunate way about sales comp and anything else in life when something that's really important to them feels outside of their control. That's when people have that kind of just despairing kind of reaction that we don't want them having. Then we don't want our salespeople in that place, right? We don't want them despairing. We don't want them operating out of fear. We want them feeling strong and confident and excited and eager. I mean, that those are the kinds of words you'd, you'd want to use to describe your sales team. So how do you come up with comp plans that give them those feelings? And there are a lot of answers to that. One of them comes back down to reasonable goals that they rationally believe that they could meet or exceed. Another one is actually straightforward plans that they understand. So they don't feel like this magic secret dungeon full of who knows what is is generating a number that they don't understand that's going to affect their comp. But another huge one is the right amount of risk and upside. So if you have a comp plan that puts too much of this person's market value, what they could have earned elsewhere doing similar work, too much of that at risk for the amount of control they have over the outcomes on which they're measured, then they can feel like they're too at risk for what they have control over. And I think that one of the things that happened as a result of this pandemic is that we started to understand that there are situations in which salespeople have a whole lot less control than than we want them to have that the economy and the market conditions and supply chains and you know all kinds of things can affect the outcomes uh, and salespeople really can do a limited amount to change that outcome so i think that we had gotten to a point where we had incentive rich pay mixes that were maybe a little beyond what's healthy and i think that that 
can contribute significantly to emotionality. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, you can find comp plans, 90-10 comp plans, where people only have 10% of their total market value at risk, and people are upset because their salespeople don't care about the comp plan. That's the opposite end on the emotional spectrum. And they're, they, they don't read it, they sign it, but they don't care about it. They get their check, and they can you know have a nice one little thing happen for them that year because it's probably annual at that point. And so then it's gone too far. So the, the answer isn't totally emotional or no emotional. The answer is to, to get it right so that it feels encouraging and exciting to the salespeople and not scary and out of control to them. Before we jumped on the recording, we were talking a little bit about this idea or concept of a body of knowledge around sales compensation. And right now, you know, you're just discussing this idea of pay mix, right, for the the job. How much money is at risk? And I think conventional wisdom, right, for a lot of sales jobs has this idea of what the pay mix should be uh, for that selling role. How important do you think is one level the idea of individual company context, kind of the sales culture they've created and the reps that they've ended up hiring, you know, into their company, and maybe even down to like the individualistic level of people's appetite for risk. How does that play into your thoughts around how you make recommendations around pay mix? Well, and there's another important dimension there, which is the the larger culture that the company or the people are living in. And we know that in some parts of the world, there's more appetite for risk and more expectation of upside than there is in other parts of the world where there's a strong team emphasis and a and even a degree of shame. I'm going to say shame if somebody were to be paid a great deal while their teammates were paid less. And so you've got to take the culture, and I'm not talking about the company culture, though that matters too, but you've got to take the larger culture. Whether it's country or region, geography-based. Yes, yes. And so, so there are a lot of things to keep in mind as we go through this. And I think that, that you've you know, there's not a right or wrong answer. I think being aware of what the industry you're in, in your market area, geographic market, usually does is an interesting starting place. But I also think that stage of growth of the business is a huge part of this. Earlier stage businesses typically have more individual influence over outcomes. You're hiring a salesperson because they know how to sell stuff and actually nobody else at the company is particularly skilled at that. And they're going to invent the selling process. They may even be hired because they have a personal network or they promised you that they do. And they have people they can go call on to get this business. So if all of that's true, then that person arguably has a great deal of control over the outcome on which they're being measured, a great deal of influence. If, on the other hand, you have a fully scaled business in a mature market, and you've got a sales process that you've honed carefully over many years, and you know that if you get this type of person that you can hire fresh out of school or out of this industry, or you know where to find them, you put them through your wonderful, well-oiled machine of a six weeks or six months of sales training, whatever it takes, they come out the other end, and you're pretty confident you know what they can produce, then it's not the individual that's causing the results. It's the whole system that's been created by the business, in which case it would be more appropriate to have a more base-rich pay mix 
because the individual is operating in a system like that. So there, there is a lot of things to consider. Um, and that, that body of knowledge, honestly, hay mix is one of the things that I think the people who wrote this stuff down a long time ago got right from early on in that the primary determinant of pay mix ought to be that thing we call role prominence, which is the degree to which the individual causes the results that they're being measured on, as opposed to the rest of the team, the pricing, the breadth of the product line, the delivery schedule, the you know market position of the company, all those things that also contribute to sales success. And so the higher the prominence, the more the person who causes it, the more incentive-rich the pay mix ought to be. Now, things have changed over time in industries about role prominence. And I think some of the sales 2.0 stuff where people go on the website and self-serve all kinds of information and show up knowing what they want to buy, and a lot of the sales job is being done differently, may change the appropriate pay mix, but it changes it based on the fact that the prominence of the role changed. And so that early, early idea in the body of knowledge that role prominence is the right determinant of Paymix is still true. One more question on Paymix. I was just part of a conversation this week where somebody was lamenting the idea that their company for sales reps would provide merit pay increases against their base on an annual basis. And so over time, the longer reps been there, more tenured reps, uh, their pay mix would get more out of whack, right, to the job role and uh, was causing some difficulties for the, the folks trying to design and administer the plans. Any opinion on merit pay increase for sales reps? Should it apply to the total target, just the base? Yeah. So you put your finger right on the thing that happens, which is that if you don't pay attention to managing the pay structure, which is base and variable for sales reps, and you have a philosophy that says, go make your own raise, right? Sell more stuff if you want to raise. And that's generally the philosophy that goes with, we're not going to adjust base salary. Then over time, you get to that point, but you find that you can't hire new people in unless you have higher base pay levels than what you're paying your tenured people. But those same companies are probably handing those tenured people substantial territories so that they can maintain their compensation level at the where they think they need it to be. And then the final evolution in that process is that they get to the point where that territory is so large, and this, these are typically people in a true commission plan, right? They have a percent of what they sell that's not different from one person to the next. And so that's when it makes sense to say, go make your own increase because you just sell more and that's how you get more. Well, eventually they can't take, they can't, they've got a rock star seller who's built up a great big territory. They're earning a whole lot of money, but they've got this amazing sales talent and they want that talent to be able to grow something. But this person is spending all of their time maintaining this huge book and they know they could sell more stuff as a business if they could subdivide that territory, but they can't do it because it would take comp away from their rock star. And that is actually the presenting problem, which most often leads companies to finally make the move to go to a goal-based plan and personal commission rates so that they can keep selling that rock star and keep paying that rock star 
what they want to pay them and subdivide the territory so that the whole thing can grow better. So this is a long-winded way of saying the the scenario you've just painted leads eventually, not immediately. You can get away with it for a lot of years, like maybe five or six. But once you get into year 10 or so of never touching base salaries, it kind of blows up on you and it starts to hurt the business's ability to grow. You brought up a couple of other ideas. You know, one, you mentioned this idea of the tenured reps, the people that have been around longer. Maybe they have a slightly better or bigger territory to be able to make their money. And I know that you know, one of the classic analysis that folks will do when you're looking at the sales compensation plan is a pay per performance scatter plot. You know, one axis of pay, one axis of performance. And we're looking for that nice correlation up into the right around a trend line. And the one cut that a lot of folks will do is around tenure to say, does tenure have an impact, you know, to it for any, you know, wide variety of reasons. Again, another thing we were talking about before we jumped on the call was the idea of DEI, right, in sales compensation or comp in general. When we're doing analysis of comp plans, are your clients asking for more cuts than beyond tenure? Or are you recommending them to take more looks around fairness for different populations or groups? Around DEI, you know, that's something that I have just in the last two years started having people want to actually incentivize diverse hiring. So that's the thing that people have actually suggested putting in as an incentive measure in the comp plan. That's got some interesting implications. But I have, when clients send me data, there's a lot of sensitivity around any kind of identifying information. Mm -hmm. And so I have not actually encountered any data sets where I could reliably even detect gender. I could guess from some of the names maybe, but but so no, I haven't done any analysis on that though. I know that I've got clients who do do analysis on a number of categories of people to see if things appear to be fair. But but you also raise a great point, which is that the in that world in which there is no base salary increase, the way that sales managers, if they're able to do it, will increase the pay for the people that they feel they need to increase the pay for is by giving them accounts or territory. And so so you're kind of kidding yourself that you're not managing comp. That's just the way they're managing it is by the way they hand out territory. And that is very much subject to an individual's preferences about where they hand out that territory, which could, I can imagine, could lead to some DEI-related issues. Yeah, I'll hazard a guess and say there there may be some unconscious bias in how they're passing out accounts. And, and my thought always goes to whether it's opportunities or accounts should be more in a round-robin fashion if you're not going to do a full optimization or balancing of the territories. But uh, I think for a lot of companies, that idea of a optimized or balanced territory structure is, is uh, a future project as opposed to something in place today. <laughs> That's a great way to say it. I think it is. I think the, a lot of people... Wouldn't argue against it as a worthwhile thing, but they just never get around to it. Different topic. Uh, you did a webinar on recurring revenue and how to think about paying different sales jobs and, and I think maturity of companies around re- recurring revenue. And I, you know, you think about, re- you know, revenue, we, we had one-time revenue, you know, in the, in the software technology world, then we had recurring revenue. And now I see a lot of technology companies 
pursuing the idea of consumption-based revenue. Obviously, that transition has some impact into how you're going to pay people. Thoughts or ideas for companies out there on, on how to pay sales reps when you don't know the outcome at the time of initial contract? What, what are some of the techniques people can do? That's a hard one. But but one thing I just have to say, and we were talking about this too before we got on, I think we need to, software has this general idea that that they're in a place that no one's ever been before. So they think they invented subscriptions, for example. <laughs> and, and as we were discussing earlier, you know, long before there was software, there were subscriptions. There were subscription magazines. There was phone service that was sold as a on a recurring revenue model. There was waste management services. People are going to come pick up the trash. I mean, some places is handled by the city, but some places you actually pay your waste management company to come pick up your trash. And that's recurring revenue. All of that is. And there's other examples. So subscriptions have been around for a long time. And if you knew what, for example, telecommunications was doing for how they comped people when they signed up for voice, video, and you know the, their internet service, then you would see what they developed over decades before software got into subscriptions. So I think that, that that's an important thing to remember is that, that nobody, it's not like no one's ever been there before. So this consumption-based thing in software has some stuff to learn from all the all the folks who have been selling a consumption-based model. So examples that come to mind for me are like staffing services who will mm. place temp temps in a company. You don't know how long that temp's going to be here, or how many temps they're going to consume. Your contract is for a rate, and that's what's committed to, but there's no particular volume commitment. That's been going on for a there have been temp agencies for a very long time. And, and you know, there are other examples. There are examples in back to telecommunications where people are being are paying for the amount of bandwidth that, that they use. And that's been going on for a pretty long time. So how do those people pay? Those people normally pay on book size growth. So I'm walking in, I've got a set of accounts that are my accounts. I may have some prospect accounts that I haven't yet landed. They're in my, I've got a right to go sell these book. And I've got a value, an ongoing, say, let's say monthly recurring revenue value of this book walking into say a quarter. And by the end of that quarter, I've got a different value, ideally larger value. And they, those companies would pay on the increase in the monthly recurring revenue for that book. So that's one way of doing that. It's a completely different thought. And the, one of the problems with it is that, especially in software, people have gotten used to being paid upfront mm -hmm. for the long-term value of the thing they sold. So even if they're selling a three-year SaaS deal, a lot of businesses will pay for the new business salesperson who sold that thing. They'll pay for it very close to when it was sold. You don't have to wait for three years to get the total payout on that. Whereas if you're paying for book growth, then you've got to make it grow. And every month, you've got to make it grow a little more. So if I get something to grow right now, I've got to keep that thing there and add to it the next month. It's not nearly as much fun, honestly, to get paid that way. But you can't pay up front for some future thing when you don't know how big it is. I've said this a thousand times in the last year. Two things have to happen before you finish paying a sales rep for something. One is they have to have done most of the things they need to do 
to get that thing sold to the point that you want them to redirect their effort to the next opportunity. That doesn't mean everything, and you can still charge it back if you don't get paid or whatever, but they've done most of what you want them to do. And the other thing is you know what they sold, you know, and, and so with a high degree of confidence. And so the consumption model for the lifetime value of that really doesn't check that box in most cases. Now, I do have one client that recently did something pretty innovative. They got a lot of good history, a lot of good data, and they actually can say with a lot of confidence, if you get a consumption-based agreement with a customer that has these characteristics, you know, at least this size customer, at least this, it's a, I probably better not say too much about who it is, but anyway, they know the characteristics of the customer and the characteristics of the way the thing is set up, and they can say with some reasonable confidence what that's going to be worth to the business over the next five years. And so they will pay upfront for that. But very few companies have the that linkage where they know what those factors are that would give them the confidence to pay upfront on a consumption model. I think that's just kind of an interesting point. I think the idea of whether it's the comp plan or the quota or the territory I feel like, and this is where you're out there as a practitioner talking to a lot of clients, you have a better probably perspective on it than I do, but uh, that a lot of companies are using, you know, rearward looking data to make these decisions and not thinking about the future, the market, you know, thinking about like forward looking data, but you just described a company that's looking at parameters of their, their clients to try to make educated guesses to inform a comp decision, that's really interesting to me. Like, is that, do you see more companies looking forward or most people still looking backwards? Most of them are still looking backwards. So that takes some substantial data set and some really good analytics to get to the point where you've got the confidence to do that. But it's also incredibly good for the business if you can do that, right? So it's not just good for sales comp. Now I've got really great telemetry as I look ahead at where I'm headed. I can tell, I can also start focus my salespeople, not just on go get me business, but if you get business with customers with these characteristics, Mm -hmm. then you're going to make more money and we're going to make more money and just continuously refining the model. So it's, it's very powerful for predicting where you're going as a business, for developing your strategy, probably for your marketing materials, for your product pipeline, what it is that you're going to develop next, your roadmap. Uh, there's all kinds of good things that come from it. Yeah. The sa- sales comp is almost, when you think about all of that goodness, sales comp is kind of a side effect. Here's, to me, I'm like, yeah, if you can get that all in alignment. Yeah. That sounds like the holy grail, right? Of, it's uh, powerful Of stuff. revenue growth. Right. You just mentioned this idea of you want to pay reps either, or maybe it was, uh, and, I wasn't sure if it was and or. It was and. It was and. It was and, Okay. <laughs> On, uh, you know, knowing that they've done the activities they need to do to secure the deal or, you know, based upon the results. And this is a conversation that keeps coming up for me. I mentioned the idea that I think as soon as you you look for something, it pops up everywhere. But the idea of, I feel like there's a, a debate that is cyclic, but it's come back up recently of should we be paying reps for inputs into deals or only paying them on outputs or the performance of how they, of what they've done? Any take on, are you on one side of the fence or the other? Or does it depend? I I generally am. 
So here are some some premises that I think are, are really important for motivating comp plans. The first one is, and you're going to wonder how this, what this has to do with this, but I promise we'll get there. The first one is that we need to have pay at risk in order for it to be motivating. It can't just be over and above pay. It needs to be the case that the variable pay at target is needed for the person to earn what they could have earned elsewhere doing similar work. So at-risk pay needed. Second premise is no risk without upside. Not rational to shove some of my money out on the table to, to play this game that you've set up for me unless under my own steam I can expect that if I do work really hard and a little lucky, I can pull back in more than I shoved out. So need at risk pay, no risk without an appropriate piece of upside. And the next one is that all upside needs to be demonstrably self-funding on the income statement. So if you have decided to, you know, your coverage model the number of people you need and the roles that you want them in and the places that you're going to actually put them in terms of their assignment, those things, when you decide to hire those people, you're looking at the total market value of the job and you're looking at the total production you expect and you're committing to the cost at target with the hiring decision. But when they start overachieving, you need to be sure that any overachieving they do earns them more money, but it's worth it on the margin. You don't want to be paying salespeople $2 for every margin dollar they're bringing in once they're over goal. That doesn't make any sense for the business, right? Yeah. Tough to make and that so, up in volume. Exactly. <laughs> That's, yeah. So you're sorry they, they overachieved if you don't watch it. So, And if it's not a financial measure, how do I know? that my upside was worth it. Now, if I do know, because I know that these activities are going to yield these other financial results with a high degree of certainty, not perfectly certain, but a high degree of certainty, just like this client I have knows if you sell customers that look like this, we're going to get this much out of them. You know, So if you've got activities that are demonstrated to be highly correlated with some kind of I would say value co uh, creation, but I'm going to go ahead and say operating income creation. Maybe not this year, maybe next year or in a future year. Those activities I can see putting in the comp plan. Now, I've said all that as if that's a hard and fast rule. There's a place for minority components that are focused on long cycle stuff, but you're going to break some of the risk and upside rules. You're not going to necessarily offer two times target to top performers on activities. You mm -hmm. can't pay as much upside on activities as you can on financial results. You have to structure it differently. You have to structure it differently. It's less exciting, and you maybe need to put more upside on the financial measures in the same plan that has less upside or even capped at target on activities. So you've got to make sure the upside is there somewhere in the plan. But that means that those activity metrics are not going to be as motivating because they don't have the right combination of risk and upside. That's the logic I go through. It's got to have risk. Risk has to have upside. Upside has to be self-funding on the income statement. How do I know what the marginal value of the activity was? I appreciate you walking me through that perspective. I'll <laughs> what check do you back. think? I'll I check back in. It was interesting because I think that 
you know, my perspective on it was trying to, I had to step back a little bit. And I said, I think the longer somebody's been involved in sales comp, like where, where they learned, right? The, the body of knowledge from, uh, the more they're probably on the side of performance only, math matters, uh, financial metrics matter type of the equation. And I think that this idea of paying people for activities, maybe a little more progressive line of thought around motivation and saying that, uh, you know, maybe that's a more effective motivating tool because people can, like you said, prominence and control. People can control their level of effort. To me, my mind then jumps to, I'm like, oh, well, of course, as a consultant, I'm, I'm in the middle. And it, my mind jumps to the idea of a business development rep or a sales development rep plan where I'm like, well, I want to have a quantity measure, maybe how many meetings they set up, but I need to have a quality measure to offset that so that it's not putting in garbage. And so I'm going to tie it to either, you know, the next stage of the pipeline of the sales accepted opportunity or tie it down the road to actually close one business. But I don't think, but in my mind, I'm like, for that role, so I think, you know, this idea of if I'm making this recommendation for that particular role, are there similar recommendations to be made for other selling roles? So I'm not all the way on one side or the other, and I don't like to be a fence sitter, but uh, so I'm trying to gather some data inputs from experts such as yourself to see where this is all going uh, type of thing. I have to share a one-liner that resonates in my mind, especially in that lead generation example you just cited. You know, do we pay for the leads? Do we pay for sales accepted leads? Mm-hmm. Do we pay for close one leads? With a sales leader who was really one of the favorite, my favorites I've ever worked with, who slammed his fist on the table when the lead gen person was saying they wanted to be paid for leads. And he said, we're over here looking for needles in haystacks. You are trying to figure out how to pay people to send me hay. Hayst- yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so that's, you know, that I think of that often. The other thing I've got to say is I have done so many analyses of pay and performance history and reviewed so many others. And inevitably, when there's a an objectives-based measure, and I'm not going to necessarily say measurable activities like leads, but some kind of objectives-based thing, which usually is some kind of activities, but maybe less structured than counting leads. Inevitably, I mean, literally with one exception in 20 years, if you look, you plot the payout as a percent of target on the financial measures beside the payout as a percent of target on the sales objectives or whatever you want to call it, and you draw the line to connect the payout is a percent of target for one person. So now I've got a line for each person. Hmm. What you see is that the highest paid people on the financial objectives are the lowest paid people on the objective objectives. Oh, interesting. And so there's an inverse correlation there. And when you start asking the salespeople, sales leaders, what's going on, the answer is they made enough money on their commission. I needed to spend the money on the people who really worked very hard but didn't manage to sell much. It's that inverse correlation that drives me batty because it's just basically a tool for the sales leader to directly manage comp. Yeah, that's interesting. I've seen that too many times. I mean, I'm very suspicious of the whole thing for that reason because I've seen that, that picture so many times. We're almost at the end of our time together. We have two questions that we like to ask everybody. 
Okay. The first one is, who in the world of sales comp would you most like to take to lunch? Scott Colt. He's an older fellow and, and started the Towers Parent Practice years ago and was my initial inspiration and just one of the finest human beings I've ever met. And anyway, he's, the, he's, a, he's long since retired, but I had to pick one. He would be the one. All right. Second question. As you can tell, I like to read any books that you would recommend to folks, whether it's specific to sales comp, sales management, general business, or just a good book that you read recently. Any recommendations? And, and, and this one, I'm going to say the Sales Compensation Handbook. This is another old book. And as it doesn't know about recurring revenue, for example, but it explains the foundational principles so beautifully. The basics of creating a plan design process that's high involvement and creates buy-in from the beginning as you go about updating your plans each year. The appropriate application of things like role prominence and, and selection of measures and designing of payout curve shapes, all of those basic things that go into still today just about every single plan. It has example plan documents with great communication guidance about how to how to really get buy-in from the sales team as the plans are rolled out. Um, it's just a, a, a really good foundational book. And what's the name of that one more time? The Sales Compensation Handbook okay. is the name of it. It's still available on Amazon, I think, and now in paperback. So it's, it's a good book. All right. Well, Donnie, thank you so much for participating in the show. I genuinely appreciate it. We covered a lot of topics today, and I think people are going to find, again, a lot of value from a very short period of time uh, with your expertise. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's, as you can tell, I can talk about it endlessly. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so All right, much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The Sales Compensation Show was brought to you by Forma AI, the world's most advanced sales compensation solution. To learn more about how Forma AI makes sales comp more valuable to your business, visit forma.ai. Find us by searching for sales compensation in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or anywhere else podcasts are found. And make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. On behalf of the team here at Forma AI, thank you for listening and stay smart out there.